0: And welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, and many other areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Evan Thompson. Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. His new book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation, and Philosophy, is just out from Columbia University Press. The quest for an explanation of consciousness is currently dominated by scientific efforts to find the neural correlates of conscious states on the assumption that these states are dependent on the brain. A very different way of exploring consciousness is undertaken within various Indian religious traditions in which subtle states of consciousness and transitions between such states can be revealed through meditation. In Waking, Dreaming Being, Thompson draws on both neuroscience and these meditative traditions to illuminate consciousness and the nature of the self while avoiding both neuro-reductionist and spiritualist agendas. He develops a view of our sense of self as an emergent process of eye-making that is constructed in relation to our environment and the body on which it depends. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Evan Thompson. Are you there? I am there. Hello. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, I'm very excited to be talking about your new book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, um, which is a fascinating and very synthetic and uh, sympathetically, I'd say, critical look at both neuroscience and uh, meditative practices of Buddhism um, as regards to the phenomenon of consciousness and. And the self, Um, and this book, in certain ways, from understanding your own uh, background, um, you know, combines a bunch of interests that you've had, from what I can tell, at least not just professionally, but also personally, from you know, from from your upbringing. So maybe you could, to start us off, um, you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing um, and your immersion in uh, both, I guess, Buddhist. Practices, um, as well as the cognitive and neuroscientific um, training that you've had and philosophical training that you've had on top of that.
1: Yes. Um, So, my upbringing, well, I was raised in somewhat of an unusual circumstances, I suppose. I was raised in a community in the 1970s that was also an alternative educational institute that my father, William Irwin Thompson, who's a, who's a writer, that he founded. He was a university professor in humanities at York University in the early 1970s, and he wasn't really satisfied with how the universities at that time were approaching learning. And so he quit a full tenured professorship to start an alternative institute that brought together scientists and philosophers and artists and political activists and you could say spiritual contemplative teachers from a variety of different traditions both western and and asian and in true 1970s style it was run as a as a community or as a commune you could say so that was the context in which i in which i grew up so i was exposed very early to a lot of different kinds of ideas intellectually and religiously and spiritually and and in a context where all of them were very much up for, I suppose you could say, debate and critical engagement with each other. It was also a context in which the community practiced meditation together um, from different contemplative backgrounds. So I was raised in a context where meditation was valued and I I learned different kinds of meditation when I was very young. And it was in that setting that I that I was first exposed to Buddhist philosophical ideas and and Indian philosophical ideas more generally, and as a result of that, partly I decided to go um, when I went away to college. I went to Amherst College in 1979, and when I when I went away to Amherst, what I um, was really interested in studying was was Asian philosophical tradition. So I I majored in Asian studies. I studied Chinese language and Chinese history and literature mainly. I also had a strong interest in Chinese Buddhism and and Taoism, and I studied western philosophy along the way as well. And when I decided to go to graduate school, I faced a choice of, you know, whether do I go on in Asian studies, do I go on in religion, do I go on in philosophy? And it was really philosophy that I was mainly interested in. I was I was really interested in the philosophical approach to critical analysis and argumentation and ideas, but I had always been interested in it in a very cross-cultural way. So when I went into to philosophy for graduate school at University of Toronto, I focused primarily in, in Western philosophy and very quickly got drawn into philosophy of mind and cognitive science, but I kept my interest in Asian, Asian philosophical traditions and also in Asian Contemplative practices, Buddhist meditation and, and yoga and Tai Chi and things like that, I, I kept those interests all along. So it was natural for me to really always be thinking about them in some sort of inner conversation um, across these, these different traditions, even though I was really focusing on, on Western philosophy and cognitive science. And then in graduate school, I had the opportunity… To work with someone I had met at the Lindisfarne Association, that was the name of the of the institute that my father founded in the 1970s, he had brought a neuroscientist named Francisco Varela to one of the conferences that he had organized, and Francisco Varela was a very pioneering neuroscientist. He was also a very serious student of Buddhist philosophy and a Buddhist practitioner. He was from Chile originally. And he became um, – he lived with us as a scholar in residence. He became a very close family friend. He was he was kind of like an uncle, older brother, mentor to me. And when I was in graduate school and, and had started to work in cognitive science, that coincided very fortuitously with a moment when he was really interested in trying to write something together or write something about Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy and cognitive science, bringing them together together from his own work and he brought me over as a research assistant to work with him on that project because he knew that I had interest in all of these things and out of that collaboration eventually we wrote together our book The Embodied Mind mm-hmm. which was published in 1991 also with Eleanor Roche, a psychologist at at Berkeley so these things have always been kind of intermixed for me the 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 Asian philosophy western philosophy and cognitive science collaboration with neuroscientists I I wrote my own dissertation on color vision and philosophy of perception and Francisco Varela at that time in his in his lab in Paris was doing work on color vision. So I, I really learned um, from being in the lab a lot about how scientists think about questions and how they um, – how they proceed to set up experiments. I had no formal scientific training because I had been trained in the humanities as an undergraduate and in graduate school. So all of the science I, I learned along the way collaborating with with neuroscientists, especially with with Varela.
0: Um, well, all of that, um, you know, really comes through in this book, which is also very integrative and, and your comfort in these dis- different traditions really, really does come through. Um, So let me, let me to get, you know, to start to get into the more of the details of the book itself, um, I guess there's two, uh, two very broad uh, foundational questions you might say that, um, that might be helpful before we get into the details. One, you know, from the scientific side and another um, from the, you know, from the Buddhist side. So from the, from the scientific side, um, you use the terms, you know, consciousness experience and awareness, right, kind of throughout the book. Um, so, you know, at the beginning of the book, you say the central idea is that the self is an experiential process. It's enacted in processes of awareness, um, and it comes and goes depending on how aware we are. Um, and a lot of the book itself, of course, talks about consciousness and different kinds of conscious states and transitions between such states. So the question on this side is just how do you see the relationships between the phenomena that we you know kind of try to pick out with the terms consciousness experience and awareness because you know different theories of consciousness say that they are different right that they're different things some of them identify them so i just wanted to know from that perspective uh, what those different, how how you see those different terms related, um, and then from the sort of Buddhist traditional side, for people who are not so well acquainted with uh, with Buddhist traditions, if you could give uh, those people an idea of, you know, what are the general features of that tradition that you draw on in in this work.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so if we start with the terms consciousness and awareness, experience, um, of course, these terms can be used in in all sorts of different ways, and there's not necessarily any one any one right way to 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 use them. The way that I use the terms in the book is coming from a particular model that you could describe one could describe as a, a pan indian philosophical model that is it it's we find it in buddhism but we also find it in other indian philosophical traditions that would disagree with buddhism over over various things including exactly how to precisely specify these three things that i'm going to mention but just in general terms the model the threefold model would be to distinguish between awareness itself which would would be distinguished from the particular contents of awareness that would be present in any given um, moment. So if we're awake, the contents of awareness are largely perceptual. Uh, they're also cognitive. If we mind wander and you know, start thinking about something, we start remembering something. Um, if we start to fall asleep, the contents change. We experience you know sleep-onset images. If we dream, again, the contents are different. But the phenomenon of of awareness is is present. So we can distinguish awareness versus whatever the object or content of awareness is in any particular moment or in any particular transitory state. And then thirdly, for whatever, let's say, arises as a content of awareness, it's either um, identified with as self – or not identified with as self. So right now I have an awareness of, of my body um, sitting in the chair and I, I identify all of those bodily sensations as, as me or, or as mine. So there's an identification or self-identification process that's going on that marks some things off as self and other things as non-self. So in the most general terms in the book – what I try to do is I take this threefold model of awareness, contents of awareness and ways of identifying with certain contents as self or as I, me, mine and I use that as a structure for looking at a whole range of different kinds of phenomena and there again I'm guided by another taxonomy that I think is the really the oldest taxonomy – of consciousness in in recorded human history. And this comes from the very early Indian texts of the Upanishads, which are not Buddhist texts. These are are Vedic or um, uh, one could say Hindu texts. And they mark off the states of waking, dreaming, deep and dreamless sleep as distinct states with distinct phenomenal features and distinct um, senses of self and then also a fourth state in some texts, which is simply identified as pure awareness. And this is very much tied to a metaphysics where awareness has its own, let's say, intrinsic nature different from any particular um, content that may be present. And that certain kinds of contemplative or meditative practices try to sensitize one to the, to the nature of awareness itself, regardless of whether, whatever happens to be occurring in awareness. So I use that taxonomy of waking, dreaming, dreamless sleep. I use pure awareness as in a way a kind of placeholder for um, different kinds of um, forms of awareness that might be especially occurring in various kinds of meditative practices. I use that taxonomy to organize my discussion along with this threefold model of awareness, contents of awareness and ways of identifying with some as self. I use that as a structure for then – um, investigating what is occurring in these states from the perspectives of neuroscience and, the, and especially the neuroscience of consciousness, also from the Indian philosophical um, perspectives. So sometimes that's um, drawing heavily on Buddhism. Sometimes also on other traditions, yoga and Vedanta that are that are not Buddhist. Those are those are Hindu traditions. And then also with a fair amount of you could say Western contemporary Western philosophy of mind, especially as it's been in dialogue with the neuroscience of consciousness. So that's that's in very general terms how the how the book is structured and and the architecture of the book. I suppose with regard to the word consciousness. Um, I tend to use it as a term for all three of those things together, awareness, whatever the content or object of awareness is, and whatever form of self-identification is present experientially. Consciousness marks all or, – or names all three of those things for me. And, and there I'm actually thinking in many ways of consciousness in a way that I see at any rate as – Rather close to how it's used in the context of Western phenomenology in the philosophical sense, coming from, say, Husserl um, or Brentano or Meloponti, where the intentionality or the directedness of consciousness and, towards an object and an implicit self world or self other differentiation is, is present. Um, I, I, I see that as very much, um, that, that picture is very much consistent with my use of the word consciousness.
0: Okay so um and then the general well I guess maybe we can get to you can raise particular features of the various eastern traditions um as we as we proceed um so let's start with with waking which is kind of where you begin uh examining these these different um different states of consciousness or different types um so what is waking and uh, pure awareness. I mean, how do you uh, what could, introduce to us our, your discussion of of mm-hmm. that particular state of consciousness from the science, from the Western and Eastern or neuroscience versus uh, Buddhist and or Hindu perspectives.
1: All right. So waking is a state in which um, perceptual engagement with the environment is. Um, strongly present and in which attention is typically moving from one thing to another. So, you know, in the case of, say, Visual perception. We know that visual attention shifts with eye movements as as you're as you're um, you know looking about it at different things. Either if you're you know sitting or if you're if you're moving. But of course, attention also shifts to other kinds of sensory contents, to what one hears or to how one's body feels. So it's a field. It's you could say it's a it's a it's a um, field of perceptual awareness with a constantly shifting attention with a strong um, sense of a, of a bodily self as the, as the basis or anchor for the sense of self, but it's also a state in which a lot of cognitive activity is occurring. For example, you may be immersed in some uh, engaging perceptual motor task like typing away at the keyboard or maybe you're cooking something at the stove or maybe you're riding a bicycle. But you're in those contexts, your mind can also wander and so then the sense of self shifts into things like autobiographical memory where you identify with a certain image of yourself as represented in the past. You identify past experiences as you remember them as yours, as belonging to yourself That that feels as if it's the same self that's engaged in whatever you're doing now. So it's also a state in which there's what a lot of what psychologists would call mental time travel, um, autobiographical memory, projection into the future, and um, planning and things of that sort, but very much anchored on the, the reference point of, of the body in, in the environment situated perceptually. So that would, those would be the features of, of waking. And so in the book, I focus a lot on perceptual experience. And what neuroscience tells us about how attention functions in perception, um, particularly that it moves um, discreetly from one thing to the next that it that it that it jumps that it it typically is in that sense unstable, m- moving around from from one thing to another and and that can be studied in various precise ways, especially um, there 's been a lot of work on that in the context of, of visual attention and, and visual perception. Um, and I also look at it from the point of view of um, Buddhist philosophical theories of perception that I relate to to the neuroscience findings. maybe we, you know we might want to talk about that in a minute as somewhat of a, of a separate discussion, I suppose. And issues about um, how one would uh, measure awareness in a cognitive science context in relation in the waking state in perception, in relationship to things like whether one verbally reports. Being able to see something, or whether you show some behavioral sign of the visual presence of something, but you're not actually able to report um, your awareness of it, so that that uh, or your discrimination of it, so that raises questions about um, different ways of approaching the phenomenon of of awareness in um, the context of perception. Now, you also asked me about pure awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, pure awareness is. A concept that is is used differently in in the different Indian traditions, but I suppose for the moment the idea would be that it's important to distinguish qualities that pertain to awareness itself, regardless of what state you might happen to be in, waking or dreaming, let's say, um, versus again the objects of awareness that are occurring in that state, and so certain types of meditation practices. Are based on the idea of regardless. So this would be what would be described as a kind of practice of open awareness, rather than a, a, a concentration practice. Would be one where you where you try to stabilize your attention on an object, say, following the in the in and out sensations of the breath. Whereas an open awareness practice would be one where one doesn't try to intentionally select. Or intentionally suppress anything that occurs. Simply notices whatever that arises, but in a way that where one's um, sensitivity, let's say, is oriented not so much to the thing that's arising, but simply to the quality of awareness itself, to the to the to the presence of a phenomenal field as such. I suppose you could say, mm-hmm. and and that would be a practice that would be orienting you towards the, the phenomenon of awareness regardless of, of whatever content arises. Now, um, typically that's practiced in the waking state, of course, um, though this is another thing we could talk about. There are, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, um, practices of lucid dreaming of When you're aware in a dream state, you would try to actually um, engage in the same sort of practice so it doesn't have to just be in the waking state. So it's practiced in the waking state and it's conceptualized as a kind of – as it were, waking up to the waking state in the sense that ordinarily we just go about, do what we do and our attention jumps around. We get lost in mind wandering and we're not – Sensitive to simply the phenomenon of awareness itself, so becoming sensitized to that is, in a sense, you could say, um, a kind of waking up to the to the phenomenon of awareness itself.
0: Okay, so you you so you, you mentioned lucid dreaming, and um, uh, there are a couple chapters on on the phenomenon of of dreaming um as well as uh, a good critical look at the phenomenon of, of so called lucid dreaming, um which I mean as uh, I unders from what little I know about it, um uh it has it has been at least somewhat controversial whether there is such a thing as, as lucid dreaming or whether it's really just uh not really uh it, it's not really sleeping at all it 's not where at least it does not occur in sleeping um, so um just to continue from the waking to the to the dreaming part um, maybe you could say about uh tell us about how you um, uh how you analyze dreaming um you know consciousness uh, in dreaming and then in lucid dreaming itself and the different uh as as you defend this idea of Of lucid dreaming in terms of different perspectives that the self can take uh, within, you know, dreaming? Okay.
1: So I distinguish, under the heading of dreaming, I distinguish three distinct phenomena, let's call them. So one is what's called the hypnagogic state. So hypnagogic literally means leading into sleep. And it's the state, the sleep onset state where um, it's, a, it's a kind of liminal transitional state from waking into sleep. So in this state, you close your eyes, you become relaxed. Um, often, spontaneous images will form. You'll hear sounds that you're not sure whether they – there really were sounds that occurred in, in, in the room or whether they're sounds that in some sense you're imagining. So there are these these – Let's say spontaneously generated sensory image type of contents. Um, often there are there are thoughts that have a kind of meaning or coherence, but then if you were to wake up it would the thought might seem strange. So there's a kind of um, let's just say very generally, spontaneous mentation that's occurring. And one of the features of this state is that there's it, it's an absorbed state in which the strong, that say difference between a bodily self and an outer world really starts to dissolve there's a kind of absorption in the image or in the sound there's a to use a kind of psychoanalytic language that some researchers have used there's a kind of dissolution of ego boundaries but unlike when you dream there's usually not the sense of being immersed in a in a world there's it's it's more you could say absorbed and and spectator like. It's as if you know the visual awareness has this kind of screen phenomenon, but there's a there's a there's a dissolution of this self other structure with the with the absorption. So that those are features that are characteristic of sleep onset. We know that certain kinds of um, electrophysiological brain rhythms uh, mark this state as you go from from waking into sleep. Then. I distinguish that from dreaming in a more um, let's say full-blown sense where there is a sense of immersion in a world that is in something that has spatial and and temporal dimensions and in which there is usually a strong sense of self either – in a, in a first-person perspective where you're immersed in the dream world, you're, you're seeing the dream world through your own dream eyes as it were. You are participating in, in things that are going on. So that's a, a kind of strong first-person perspective in the dream. Or sometimes you can have a dream in which there's a more spectator quality where you see yourself from the outside – as a, as a character in the dream. We know that these two kinds of structures of, let's call it, seeing the dream from within and seeing yourself from without, that this is also the structure of autobiographical memory. So if you ask someone to recall an event from the past, they may recall it from within as if they were, in some sense, reliving the event, or they may see themselves from outside. And, of course, presumably they didn't live the event originally from an outside perspective. So this has to do with the way that memory um, is consolidated and kind of cognitively restructured and very much tied to a sense of self because you have to conceptualize yourself as a self in order to have that outside perspective. So (coughs) – excuse me. So this is something that – excuse me one moment. This is something that occurs as well in the dream state. So the point here would be that dreaming has a certain sense of self that is different from the hypnagogic state and it's an example of what I mean by identifying with certain contents as the self because in the dream state, everything is in some sense a creation of your mind but you mark certain things off as you in the dream and other things as, as not you. Now, in the case of lucid dreaming, lucidity admits of a of a whole um, range, I suppose you could say. So it's not an all-or-nothing thing. It admits of degrees. The sense in which I use the term lucid dreaming is to define the state as being able to direct your attention to the dream state. So… This comes in different um, degrees or different strengths you could say of lucidity. Sometimes you may have a a um, full-blown conceptualization of yourself as dreaming and you can think this is a dream state and that depends of course on being able to direct your attention to the state as a dream state. But sometimes the directing of attention may be more implicit let's say and you might not be thinking explicitly this this is a dream state. Now, but there's in some sense an awareness of the state as as a dream and the ability to to direct attention to it in that way. Now, um, lucid dreaming has been in that sense has been reported uh, throughout human history, different different cultures um, it, coming down to us through different texts and so on. I would say that with the emergence of sleep science in the 1950s, that there was skepticism about whether it was whether there really was such a thing as a distinct state. And the thought was that, well, probably what's going on is people are waking up. They um, are then falling back asleep. And when they wake up again, they have a kind of retrospective confab- confabulation of having been awake in the dream state. But really what was happening is that they had a, a kind of micro awakening and, and then went back to sleep with that, with that memory of, of having been awake. And, what happened is that it became possible in the development of, of sleep science to establish using certain kinds of physiological and behavioral measures that people can report while they're asleep, being aware that they are dreaming. And the way that they do this is by signaling awareness of the dream state through eye movements. So it's established in advance of going to sleep that if you – move your eyes left and right a certain number of times while asleep. So the sense is that you're moving your dream eyes, as it were, but those dream eye movements correlate with physical movements of the eyes. And in the rapid eye movement state, regular left-right movements show up immediately as distinct from um, the usual darting about of the eyes. So it's agreed that the participant in the sleep lab, when he or she has the sense of being aware of dreaming, that they signal by moving their eyes in this way – And then upon awakening, the subject reports having been aware of of a dream and having made those eye movements and and they're they're on the uh, eye movement trace. So using that method, it was possible to establish that there really is a very um, robust and and reliable correlation between reports from, as it were, within sleep of being aware of being asleep and dreaming, signaling using these eye movements and then the recording of the the eye movements um, in the – in the lab, and and this this method has now actually been used in the past five years to um, study lucid dreaming using EEG and fMRI, where you have people who are reliable lucid dreamers, and. You have them fall asleep in the scanner or in the sleep lab wired up to EEG, and you have this prearranged method of signaling when when they become lucid. And as a result, you can study the kinds of electrophysiological brain activities that um, are associated with the state in, in, say, EEG, or you can look at different areas of brain activation in functional magnetic resonance imaging. And, and what's basically seen is that electrophysiologically, you see um, signatures um, brain rhythm signatures that are indicative of, of um, aspects of consciousness and cognitive processing that are increased in that REM sleep state, the lucid REM sleep state compared to non-lucid REM sleep, that bring it in a way closer in certain respects to waking consciousness. And also in the fMRI context, you see the activation of attentional and metacognitive systems um you see them comparatively activated in the lucid rem sleep compared to non lucid rem sleep in a way that again resembles the kind of activation that you would see in attentional states in the waking state so this evidence has has now basically been taken to show that that lucid dreaming you know from the sleep science point of view is is really a um distinct kind of sleep and dream state and it's phenomenologically Interesting in relationship to the sense of self—that is how we experience the self—in that in a non-lucid dream, you're you're immersed in the dream world and you experience that from within, perhaps from a first-person perspective, or maybe you maybe you see yourself from the outside as a as a figure in the dream. But when you become lucid, the sense of self shifts in the sense that you can now conceptualize yourself not just as a as a dream ego in the dream but as a dreaming self so in a very strong lucid dream you may have the awareness that you're actually you know at home asleep in bed and you can think both thoughts i am flying in my dream and i am asleep in bed and i am having a flying dream so there's a there 's an enlargement you could say in the um, structure of the sense of self that that happens in the lucid dream compared to the non lucid dream, and that's an example of a distinct self state that's part of the, the 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 lucid dream consciousness
0: okay so um, let, let me ask now so we've got wake wakefulness right and we've got various you know different different sorts of Experiences going on within within sleep. It's not just you know either dreaming or being awake. And then you suggest you have a very interesting um, uh, perspective on the relationship between them, where you suggest that um, waking or wakefulness is uh, is dreaming with sensory motor constraints, uh, whereas dreaming is perceiving without sensory motor constraints. So, can you say something about the relationship between? Uh, wakefulness and and then the various dreaming states. Mm-hmm.
1: So, w- the basic idea here is that um, there's always be- because the brain is a, a, a complex self organizing system with its own s- ongoing self generated activity and that this is happening all the time. That there's always spontaneous cognition and spontaneous mentation that's that's going on so in the waking state that you know takes the form of fantasy and daydreaming and and mind wandering and then bringing your back to what you're doing and and focusing on what you're doing and then having the mind wander again and daydream in in date in in dreaming the um the, the coupling of that to the, uh, perceptual environment is, is decreased. So of course, it's still a sensory state in that there's still all this interoceptive sensation that's coming from the body. But you are, um, less directly, uh, engaged in the form of perception and action with the outer world than you are in the waking state. So in the dream state, that spontaneous mentation, um, is, is arising in a way that's, that's, that's less uh, constrained by sensory motor activity uh, of the sort in the waking state. And I think of that as – I describe the dream state in general as a kind of state of spontaneous imagination. So I, I disagree with theorists who describe it as a, as a kind of sham perceptual state or a hallucinatory state. I think of it as an as a imaginative state, a state of, of imagination or imaging. And – in the waking state, that's always going on as well. There's always a, a generation of spontaneous, uh, imaginative activity in the form, for example, of mind wandering and daydreaming. Um, but it's it's constrained, or it's uh, in a in a richer dialogue with perception and action than is possible in in the dream state. So the waking state, in its fullest sense, is a is a is a perceptual state that is you could say shaping and shaped by imagination. Whereas the dream state is an imaginative state that is less directly shaped by that by that kind of perception.
0: So, um, I mean, this raises the question about you know what what it's for. Um, I mean, there is a, a question: what is sleep for? That that sleep scientists, I don't know if they they've answered it yet, but that's been a big question, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's pretty easy to see from an evolutionary perspective why we would want to have uh, the sensory motor inputs that we have when, when we're awake, right, uh, constraining our imagination. You know, that makes perfect sense. Um, so what what is dreaming for? You know, what is that unconstrained perceiving or spontaneous imagination? What would be um, what would be why would we have that?
1: Well, I th- the way that I like to look at that is not so much to say to suppose that dreaming has a specific let's say biological function um I mean perhaps it does and and you know we might determine that someday, but I'm inclined to think more that w- what's going on is because of the kind of architecture that we have for our brain that makes mental time travel possible where you can project yourself into the past and into the future. And that, of course, is – is that requires imagination or that is a form of imagination. But because we have a brain that that does this and we have an autobiographical sense of self, that activity is always going on. And the dream state is just a particular form that it takes. So I'm inclined to think that really what's – what needs to be determined is, you know, how is it that we come to have, as a result of the kinds of brains and bodies and social lives that we have, how is it we come to have the, this this kind of mental time travel and sense of self, and then given that the brain is always active um, cognitively, even in in sleep, we know that there's learning and memory consolidation. That dreaming is just a particular um, form that 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 that. Takes and it may have you know it might not be that there's anything that dreaming is is for in a in a specific um, functional uh, sense. It may just be a reflection of this um, way that the brain is let's say organized for imagination. That might be a better way to put it. Is is Mm -hmm. I think of our brains as organized to be you know imaginative systems, and, and dreaming is just a. Is just a variation on that. Now, that's not to say that dreaming um, is just an epiphenomenal froth on the waves. Um, it, it is, a, it is a, a, a robust imaginative state, and as all imaginative states, you know, it's meaningful, and people can, um, you know, explore it for personal meaning, and it reflects. Their ongoing, you know, personal concerns and 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 things of that sort. So I see it as a reflection of imaginative meaning making. That that might be the best way to put it.
0: Okay. Um, so let me let me ask about um, the re- the relationship between these these conscious or experiential states, whether waking or dreaming, and self. Because the um, you know you start the book by saying the central idea of the book. Is it's about the self, and the self is an experiential process, um, which which seems to identify the self with all these various states of consciousness um, or experience or awareness. Um, could you say a little bit more about about that identification, mm-hmm. or at least what appears to be an ident- identification? Yeah.
1: So this goes back to the to the framework the basic kind of organizing framework for the book where I distinguish awareness contents of awareness and identification with with certain contents as self or or we could just simply say awareness contents of awareness and the sense of self and most of the time when i 'm talking about the self in the book i 'm really talking about the sense of self the the self as experiential and i 'm talking about you know what in psychoanalytic terms would be called self states states where there is um, some identification with something as i or or me or mine that you know implicitly um, is marked off against something that that, that isn 't I or, or me or mine and the main journey of the book is to look at how those self states Um, or identification processes, how they shift across these different modes of consciousness and, and how they are, um, constructed, I suppose you could say, through, um, cognitive processes and, and conscious awareness. Now, at the, at the end of the book, when I, when I really turn to the self as a, as a topic in its own right, um, there I develop an account in which the self is very much a bodily self. And that there are bodily uh, processes of of life regulation from the cellular level up through the way that the nervous system is is organized that are the um, that are the basis the architectural basis you could say for the experiential sense of self. So in the context of that chapter, self is really referring um, to you could say. Um, Things that are under constant construction in, in the body and mind. And I, I think of that, of the self as a kind of ongoing enacted or constructive process of what I call eye-making. And some of that construction is happening, let's say, psychologically or mentally. And some of it is happening biologically and 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 physiologically just in terms of how cells and, and the nervous system function. Um, okay,
0: so… Well, maybe we can go a little more detail into into those aspects Um, uh, because you you mention various processes within this construction of the self, Uh, and you you can't first of all you contrast that view your view even though the self is a process it um, it's constructed Uh, uh, there's various states sometimes the boundaries of the self kind of dissolve um uh you it take you take different perspectives on it and lucid dreaming versus dreaming um but you you contrast that with the idea that the self is somehow an illusion um so there's a sense of self but that sense is not an illusion um can you can you say something about that
1: yeah so there in in that chapter i'm I'm contrasting with my my view with a view that I call um, neuro nihilism so this is the view and in in my mind Thomas metzinger is is uh, yeah you know a principal exponent of, of of this view and in some ways the view is close to mine and in other ways I see some real differences so I mean the view basically says that the self or the sense of self is an illusion, created by the brain in order to organize its own activity in in certain ways and it's an illusion because it involves projecting the sense that there that there is an essential substantial i when there there is no such thing there's just um, processes that that make it seem as if there were such a thing. Now, there's a sense in which I agree with that. I don't think there is an essential substantial I, that there is a, a self that is a distinct that has a distinct essence and that it's wholly present from one moment to the next in such a way that you know ensures personal I- identity. Um, and I do think that sometimes it can feel as if there as if there is, um, but I think That at a deeper level of description, what's really going on is that there's a a process of construction that involves a system through its own activity specifying itself as a coherent system in relationship to the environment. And so this is what I use the term self-specifying to mean. So the simplest example of a self-specifying system is one in which you have, say, a cell that has these internal metabolic um, reaction networks and processes that construct it as the very thing that it is, including its membrane boundary, which in turn makes possible all of the internal constructive activity. And through that... Process a kind of you know recursive self-organizing process. There is the emergence of a distinction between the unity that is the cell in relationship to the broader um, environment. So that's an example of what I mean by self-specifying in the way that, in the sense that the processes specify themselves as having a unity, um, not that they specify a self that's different from the from the system. And so what I do is I take that idea of self-specification. I describe it at that basic biological level. Then I describe how how the nervous system is also in perception and action organized that way in that if, for example, you are following the the, uh, path of the flight of birds across the sky, there is a process in which the nervous system – marks the difference between stimulation that's caused by your eye movements versus stimulation that's caused by events in the outer world and it it marks this difference in in a way that involves precisely this kind of self-specification certain kind of processes are marked off as self-generated and others as externally generated so that a self-world distinction is enacted you could say through the architecture of the nervous system in in perception and action and none of this is illusory. It's it's constructed, but it's it's not illusory. It, it's it's functional. Then, in terms of the specific features of an experiential sense of self and a more full-blooded human uh, sense, I talk about how there needs to be a, a self-designating process. So, what that means is that there are um, experiential processes of the body and mind and they are – some of them are designated or conceptualized as self or as belonging to self. So there's – to use Buddhist philosophical language, there's a kind of basis of designation which are the the mental and bodily processes that make up a kind of causal, psychological and physical continuum and then there's a conceptualization of them as self and that conceptualization is constructed but it's um, functional. And it's – I think um, you you would say it's illusory only if you thought that what a self really truly at the end of the day had to be was a kind of substance or some inner pearl essence. And if if you think that, which is kind of an extreme view, then you're going to veer to the other extreme and say, well, there is no such thing, so the self is just an illusion. But if your view was always in the middle, as it were, from from the get-go and you saw it as something emergent and constructed, then you would – Say that those processes create a sense of self that is um, very important for the kinds of you know lives that we that we lead as human beings, and it's uh, it's a construction it can come apart and be dismantled in different kinds of contexts, some of them pathological, maybe some of them beneficial in, in, say, certain kinds of meditative experiences or flow states. That sense of self can dissolve. But that doesn't show that the self is is non-existent. It shows that we need to understand it as a process rather than as a substance or as an entity.
0: Okay, So, but it, it still comes across as... as let's put it more fragmentary than uh than many people might s- assume or the way many of us do sense ourselves so we mm-hmm. we we have a sense of self that seems to be a lot more unitary than the picture that that you seem to be describing Right. And maybe that's where this the response, well, it's just an illusion, uh, might might partly come from. Do do you see it as fragmentary as as it seems?
1: I see it as constantly changing and performative. It can be fragmentary in in, in certain contexts, or it can fragment. Um, but I think. When, you know, when someone like Thomas Metzinger um, says – and I should say that, you know, he and I have talked about this many times and, you know, we're we're friends and fellow travelers in in many ways, but we we, we have different takes on this particular issue. Um, You know, I think he's very much in the grip of the idea that, well, it really feels experientially as if it's a substance. And – My sense is, well, at a superficial level of description, we might be inclined to describe it that way, especially if we're in the grip of certain intellectual concepts, like the concept of substance, which we see in both Indian and Western philosophy. But if we really actually just, you know, think about our experience, we don't necessarily even have to meditate. We just, you know, think about, well, yes, there is definitely a strong sense of continuity in, in one sense between the first person experiential perspective of memory from within such that i can remember being a kid and having certain experiences and it seems from within to me now as if that's the same first same first person perspective in another way when i when i you know think deeply about my memories that first person perspective is in a way a kind of formal structure and many things about that first person perspective have changed so you know so very much so that there's a thread of continuity, but the continuity is also one that's constantly, um, under transformation. And I have to, you know, enact the memory afresh in, in each moment. And every time I do that, of course, it changes and I, I live through it in a, in a different way. So I think that when we, you know, when we reflect in that way, and of course, you know, many novelists have, have, you know, Written things like Proust, for example, that that bring this out in a in a literary way for us to see, we can we can see that there is this there is a certain kind of continuity and stability, say, to memory. But there's a, a lot of performance, transformation, and construction at the same time.
0: So, what what is the unity or or continuity rooted in? I mean, what what gives you that?
1: Oh, I would say that there's. A uh, a continuity that's psychological and that's also causal. Um, there's you know bodily, physiological, neural continuity, mm-hmm. though that can also get disrupted, of course, as we know. And there's uh, there's the kind of psychological continuity of that sense from within of, uh, you know, a persisting first-person perspective. But at the limit of analysis, that becomes, as I was saying, kind of a formal structure because everything in it, you know, changes so much.
0: Okay, so, um, I mean, mentioning the neural basis, um, you, uh, un- unlike the pan-Indian uh, traditions that you, that you also draw on in the book, um, you do argue uh that against a du- uh, some form of dualism um where the the self and consciousness are dependent on the body or i should say actually body because you don't think it's just the brain mm-hmm. um, can you can you say a bit about your uh your view it's a it's an emergentist view i take it uh, of the relationship between um between the self and consciousness and uh the neural basis.
1: Mhm. So there's a there's a number of things to say there. So um in terms of the the views at a certain point in the book, mainly chapter 3 that I bring into kind of critical engagement with each other, one is a is a particular Buddhist view that is a that is a dualist view. It's a it's a mind-body dualism drives um In its most, I suppose, kind of rigorous philosophical articulation from the Indian Buddhist philosopher Dharmakirti, it's um, very much the view – … that informs the education of the Dalai Lama and the perspective from which he tends to speak when he's engaging with Western science and philosophy of mind. And it's a, it's a mind body dualism, but it's not a substance dualism. It's an event or process dualism. So there are mental events that have their own distinct nature and physical events that have their distinct nature. And physical events are not sufficient to generate or produce mental events. But they can enter into mutually conditioning relationships. Now, in the in the book, I I, I criticize that view, and I argue that um, conceptually and empirically, there's very good reason to think that uh, consciousness does not have that s- distinct, um, self-standing nature, and that it's contingent and dependent on. On embodiment, let's say, for the to put it in the most general way, um, and that goes along with me for emergentism in the sense that I think that the increasing um, cognitive complexity of consciousness that we see, say, in in evolution and, and um, phylogeny and biological life is dependent on the increasing complexity of the organism and the nervous system. So I'm an emergentist in in that sense. Um, But I'm not a reductive physicalist in the sense that um, I think that to really understand how consciousness is a natural phenomenon in a way that would definitely rule out certain versions of Buddhism – that we would really need to reconceptualize our understanding of what it is for a process to be a natural one or what it is for something to be physical because the, the way that we um, conceptualize the physical is such that it – by definition, excludes the mental. At it, something is fundamentally to say something is fundamentally physical, is uh, at, at at the most you know basic level of reduction is supposed to imply that it's that it's not mental, mm-hmm. and if something is essentially um, subjective or or mental. Um, in the sense of having some subjective or phenomenal character that's not supposed to conceptually entail anything um, about the physical so I think that as long as we're operating with those kinds of concepts um, there's there's always going to be a, a conceptual um, explanatory gap, and that bridging or overcoming that gap would really require a revision of our concept of the physical or the natural so that it it doesn't exclude the, the mental. So in that sense, actually, what I try to put together is a kind of emergentist position with what you might call a kind of um, neutral monism, um, the mm-hmm. idea that the mental and the physical are not the fundamental categories, they're aspects of something that Um, is deeper than that, than that conceptualization. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very attracted to that idea. Not necessarily the specific features of any one neutral monist in Western philosophy, but that, that general, the general shape of, of that idea is something that I find very attractive. So I see that as not emergentism in the usual physicalist sense, though I think it's compatible with the kind of emergentism, um, that I was, that I was just speaking about.
0: Okay. So we're, um, I think I have time for maybe one more question, and so there was something interesting that that you note at the you know towards the very end of the book, I think in the last chapter, um, about wandering minds. You you mentioned it or you mentioned it here earlier, um, but one of the things that really struck me was the idea of a wandering mind uh, as an unhappy mind, mm-hmm. um, which you know phenomenologically, I you know that does seem to to be true. Uh, at least sometimes, but I was just wonder if you might say a little bit more on why wa- mind wandering would have such a negative valence. I mean, what, that's a bit, yeah. a bit of a speculative question, but right. I, it is kind of interesting to wonder w- why. Yeah. So I uh, there,
1: I'm I'm actually quoting a study um, that was done at Harvard by by Dan Dan Gilbert and others. If I were writing that chapter today, I would actually. Back off of um, endorsing um, ah. that 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 study in quite the way that I appear to do, in the sense that mind wandering can can certainly be associated with negative affect. There are there are psychological studies that show this often because you, we when we mind wander we ruminate and we get drawn to um, concerns that. Um, you know, that are indicative of, you know, things that were, uh, that are problems in our lives or that we're, un- that we're unhappy about. So, so, and the, you know, the sort of extreme of that is depressive rumination. So that can certainly happen. But we also know that mind wandering, um, is associated with creativity, facilitates creativity, it facilitates insight. So I wouldn't want to overstate the association between, mind wandering and, um, and unhappiness. It's really, I, I would say, it's getting stuck in rumination or attached to valenced images of self um, uh-huh. that, that make us unhappy. Because mind wandering is typically, you know, when you mind wander, you think about yourself. You project yourself back into the past or into the future, and that can be very negatively valenced, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be.
0: Okay. Um, well, let me just, uh, before, we, before we end... Uh, I wanted to ask about what your next project will be. Uh, Are you continuing some of the work that you've started in this book, or are you turning to something else?
1: I am a little bit in between things, but I'm I'm drawn towards the idea of working on the basis of the chapter on dying and death in, in Waking Dreaming Being and elaborating or developing some of the ideas that are sketched in that chapter in a way that really... Um, deals or encounters um, the philosophy of death in a much more sustained, substantive way. And what what attracts me there is the idea of recovering something in philosophy that you know that was very present in philosophy in the ancient world, which was the idea that philosophy was was a preparation for for dying and was um, a practice that would that would give one the tools, you could say, for understanding. One's nature as a mortal being and that one will eventually face death and that, you know, all of us will face that. And that was very present in, in ancient philosophy in, in India and in um and in Greece and in, and in Rome and in China. And modern philosophy, I think, has, has lost that sensibility. We've, you know, we've gained a tremendous amount of, 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 um, depth and development in philosophy, often that goes along with a, you know, a technical expertise and, in, in analysis, whether in logic or philosophy of language or metaphysics. And I, you know, I think that's all, that's all to the good, but I, I would like to recover, this philosophical sensibility that's that's really oriented towards uh, a meditation on on dying and and death and this is of course very central to contemplative practices to um, to meditation and the contemplative way of life in the Indian traditions and also also uh, of course in the West in the form of of what Pierre Hadot calls spiritual exercises so this is something that I um, that I'm thinking about I haven't yet uh, really pursued it in a way where it's, you know, it's taken form in writing or structure yet, but it's, it's a direction I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm inclined to go in.
0: Great. Great. So, well, I look forward to, to reading that work, but for now, I think uh, we have run out of time. Um, So I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to talk with us.
1: Well, thanks very much. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Evan Thompson, Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. We've been talking about his new book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.